Hello, and welcome to the NLP Highlights Podcast, where we talk about interesting work in natural language processing. The hosts are members of the Allen NLP team at the Allen Institute for AI. Hi, so for today's episode of the Allen NLP Highlights Podcast, we have joining us Robin Jaw, who is currently a visiting researcher at Facebook AI Research, and he will be starting as an assistant professor at the University of Southern California in the coming fall of 2021. For your co-hosts, we have myself, Alexis Ross, I'm a pre-doctoral investigator on the Allen NLP team and Pradeep Dasigi, who is currently a research scientist with Allen NLP. So welcome, Robin. Great to have you here. Yeah, thanks. It's great to be here. So Robin has done a lot of work on building robust NLP systems, which is the topic of today's episode. So I was thinking to get started, it would be great if you could tell us what it means for a system to be robust in a general sense. Yeah, so that's a great question. And that itself kind of encompasses a lot of different things. So I guess I would say broadly, when we talk about robustness, what we want is some assurance that a system will behave well, even when it's presented with inputs that are in some sense unexpected, or perhaps when some assumptions that were made when building the system are violated, right? And that itself, you know, that, that definition is kind of intentionally vague, because I think it's, there's really not kind of one particular metric that corresponds to robustness, right? There, we often talk about being robust to various sorts of changes, right? And so in my work, I've looked at uh, robustness to various types of things, such as perturbations, or I think the most general way you can think of it for these current machine learning models is to say that uh, often the like fundamental assumption we make when we build machine learning models is a match between the training distribution and the test distribution, right? And so that is kind of one of the key assumptions that can often be violated in practice, and we would like to be robust when that assumption does not hold. <laughs> That's a great explanation. So why do we care about this kind of robustness to different distributions? Yeah, yeah, great, great question. So there's, I guess, many cases in practice where, where this holds. I mean, I actually would probably argue that it's the norm that this assumption where train equals test actually is not true in the real world for a variety of reasons. So perhaps the most obvious is just that whenever we have systems that are deployed, right, the real world around those systems is constantly changing, right? The, the sorts of things that someone might want to have translated by a machine translation system or the sorts of questions they might want to ask for a question answering system, these things are constantly changing over time, right? New users are coming into the system, the world, you know, world events are changing and, and so forth, right? So there, there's, it's kind of just like actually the a constant in the world, right, that the distribution we care about is constantly changing, right? And that's not even to talk about the fact that language itself evolves over time, right? New words are coined and so forth. So that's, I think, one kind of core reason why, why we have these sorts of shifts. Some of my work has looked at these, uh, what are termed like adversarial settings. And so we, we talk about kind of a particular flavor of robustness uh, known as adversarial robustness. And basically all the term adversarial means is that we care about some sort of worst case behavior, right? And so like, you can imagine either a real or perhaps just hypothetical adversary who's trying to find examples that will make our system fail, right? So there certainly are real adversaries out there. In if you, you can imagine cases like hate speech detection or, or misinformation, where people might intentionally want to fool some sort of whatever system is trying to, to detect that they're saying things that, that might violate some terms of service, for instance. And even going back for, for quite a few years, right, we've seen this in, in uh, tasks like spam classification, right, where spammers are trying to evade detection. So there's this kind of, there, there are these like actual adversaries in the world. But I think the, the like thinking about these sort of worst case uh, shifts is also useful because 
as we have these systems deployed widely and being used kind of in ever increasingly high stakes scenarios, right? There are often times when we just like really don't want systems to, to make mistakes. That basically the cost of making mistakes is, is just very high. To give one example here, there was kind of this famous case a few years ago where there was a man who posted a message in Arabic on Facebook that basically meant something like good morning, but it was apparently phrased in some, some unusual manner. And basically the, the machine translation system mistranslated it as attack them. And this resulted in this man like getting arrested by the Israeli police. And so this is really this, this one case where like, if people in the future are going to start relying and trusting these models so much, well, we really need, we really have this responsibility to, to make sure that they won't make these sort of errors that can result in real problems for real people. Yeah, I think another, another final connection I'll draw is to some of the concerns right now regarding how machine learning models uh, behave on different demographic groups. So this is a case where you might have uh, in both your, your training data and test data, right, certain, certain groups of people might be very underrepresented, right? And so if you just kind of look at standard average case metrics, your model might still look okay despite performing very badly on certain types of users. And so there's, there's another whole line of work in what's called distributional robustness, where the idea there is often, often looks like we would like to be robust when the proportions of different groups um, you know, under, in, our, in our distribution change, right? For example, if, if we actually care strongly that none of these, none of the various demographic groups should have very high error rates, we might uh, imagine a, a, a test setting in which we kind of equalize the proportion of them, or even we measure like what's the loss, what is the highest error rate across all the different groups, and you want to make that uh, as small as possible. So that's that's in some sense this uh, again is sort of worst case idea showing up in the context of robustness. Great, thank you. That was super comprehensive. So in research, it, label preserving perturbations are one way, I guess, of measuring robustness, and they're closely tied to some of the things that you've talked about, like adversarial robustness. Could you tell us about what those are and yeah, how they're related to some of the cases that you've described? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So uh, yeah, this, this is actually like, <laughs> if I can tell a bit of a story, like this is actually how I got interested in robustness in general, that back in, I think, 2014, there were these really surprising results out of the computer vision literature that you could apply these imperceptible perturbations to an image that could completely throw off a classifier, right? Like you have a picture of a panda and you add such a small amount of noise that to a human, it doesn't even look like you've done anything. And, but when you feed that new image to a classifier, it suddenly thinks like it's a gibbon or, or whatever. You can, you can basically make it whatever label you want. So I think that was, uh, so that's an example of perhaps a, a very strong example of a label preserving perturbation, right? It, it's, in fact, it's just like, in every way, like this image looks exactly the same. Humans, therefore, of course, think the whatever label is assigned to the original should also be assigned to this perturbed version. But, but systems often like don't behave kind of reliably in, in this scenario. So the analog in language, I, I would say there's no perfect analog here because language is discrete, of course. Like every perturbation you could apply is perceivable, right? But there are certain perturbations that, that we as humans perceive to be kind of pretty unimportant, relatively speaking, or, or that, that really don't change the overall meaning or, or overall label in, in the context of a specific classification task. So 
Some classic examples are things like uh, paraphrasing operations, and and also things like like typos. You know, at least if you if you don't have too many typos, usually we can kind of read things that that have a small number of typos just fine. Uh, but you know, as in the case with vision, NLP models can be very sensitive to these small perturbations, and we can kind of discover this by just searching in an adversarial manner for like small perturbations of the text that cause a misclassification, just like the, the vision research from before. Yeah, and, and this basically exposes these flaws where like, if, for example, in, in one, of the, one of the papers we had, if you take a model that's trained to do sentiment analysis and you can get like 90% quite easily with some simple uh, like CompNet model. But if you, if you then have some list of label-preserving operations for test examples, and for each test example, you just search for some combination of these operations that will cause the model to make an error, you can actually drive the accuracy all the way down to something like 8%. So, so basically, all, for almost every test example, there's like some very similar example that the model is, is, is still getting wrong. So in, when you're evaluating this robustness and then you get that measure of 8%, mm-hmm. how many perturbations per instance are you evaluating and how do you... So it seems like one challenge is that there are you can make any combination of perturbations. How do you choose which to evaluate there? Yeah, yeah, that's a that's a good question. So and and you brought up I think what's one of the the really interesting challenges about kind of dealing with this problem, which is that if you imagine a paragraph, right, like a, a movie review or, or or anything, there's so many different local you know rewrite operations you could apply that preserve meaning, and so if you imagine multiple of these operations getting applied. Now, suddenly you have this like combinatorially large space of, of possibilities, right? All of which are still like quite similar to the original. So, so what we would really like, ideally, is to have this model give us some sort of guarantee of the form, like across this combinatorially large space, it will always produce the correct answer, right? But of course, because this space is so large, it's non-trivial, right? You can't just like enumerate all these possibilities. So it's really hard to, to get guarantees like that. So sorry, to answer your question, at test time, the most common thing that's done is you basically do some sort of heuristic search procedure. Yeah, so what we had was really quite simple. You can just basically start with this original sentence and then try randomly a few different perturbations and kind of tend to keep the ones that have make the loss increase and then start with those and try some more perturbations, right? And kind of search Search through the space this way until you you either find one or kind of you run out of budget for your for your search algorithm. So this gives you kind of an upper bound on the like actual what we would call the robust accuracy, right? So if the search finds an example that causes an error, then like we know the model is kind of not robust to perturbations on this example. But it's possible that this search just like search did not find anything, but there is still an example that that makes the model wrong. So this is in some this is still kind of in some sense like a conservative estimate of the true impact of of these these perturbations. I see. I see. So this difference that you found between the really high standard 90% accuracy and 8% robustness accuracy kind of naturally brings about the question can we fix this? Like are there ways of making models more robust to these kinds of perturbations. And I know you've worked on this. Could you talk a little bit about how your work went about this problem and what you found? Yeah, yeah, for sure. So yeah, so, so as I mentioned, like this big technical dilemma is like, how do you reason about this like combinatorially large space? And so there, there's actually like kind of two papers that are both addressing kind of variants of this problem that I was involved in. And they kind of have two different 
solutions to this. So um, the first idea is this idea that, again, kind of first came up in, in computer vision of, of certifiably robust training. So the idea there is, as I said, it's really hard to find whatever like worst case perturbation because there's so many perturbations. But oftentimes it can be actually pretty feasible to compute an upper bound on what the worst case loss is. And so this upper bound can be useful because if you can somehow ensure that your model has that that your model makes this upper bound on the worst case loss small, that means that the loss across all of the perturbations is small, of course. And therefore, that that you should just be be correct on on all of these. So this is this is called kind of certifiably robust training because the fact that the upper bound is small kind of like certifies the fact that that you are robust. Okay. So then the question becomes like, how do you come up with a certificate like this? And the approach we explored in our work is uh, what's called interval bound propagation. So the big idea there is that neural networks conveniently have this nice structure where they're, they're very modular, right? So they're basically composed of a sequence of elementary operations in some computation graph. And each operation individually, can, we can analyze formally, right? And so for interval-bound propagation, for each uh, kind of node in the computation graph, we're going to say, if I have some, if I know some constraints on what the possible input to, to this node is, uh, I can give you some corresponding a kind of bounding box around what the possible outputs of this layer are, right? And so then if you just kind of compose all of these, these constraints together, ultimately that gives you a bound on what the final prediction can be, right? And, and then now like the, the way to train the model becomes like, make sure that this like window of what are the possible predictions is like always leaning towards the, the correct label. Um, and okay, so, so then the, the, the last thing to specify is just you might ask like, where do these like, guarantees about basically where do you, the bounds come from at the very first layer. And this is where you kind of have to assume you know something about what kind of perturbations can arise. So in our case, we basically said, suppose we know for each word in the input, there's some kind of like list of similar words that I might be replaced with. Then basically what that means is that at the word vector layer of the model, right, we can draw a bounding box that basically is just like the box that contains all of the word vectors for the different words for, for each input, right? So that gives us kind of these, these initial bounding boxes. They get propagated through every layer of the network. And finally, we get some, some corresponding bounding box on the output. And this process, because it's entirely differentiable, you can just train the parameters, right, to make the output predictions kind of always correct. I see. Can this approach be extended beyond looking at word vectors? Like, could you also imagine doing this on a sentence level? Yeah, that's a great question. Something I've, we've thought about a little bit. So the, um, I think the answer is yes, but it would require some changes to, to, to how things work, right? So basically, the reason this works well at the word level is because the structure of the neural network, right, is that like kind of each word uh, at the input layer, right, each word is just like represented by, by an independent vector, right? And so we can just draw these bounding boxes separately around each, each vector, right? So if we would want to do something that understands, for example, like perturbations at the phrase level or even, even at the sentence level, I think that's possible, but you would need a network that um, kind of respects that structure, right? For instance, so if you wanted to deal with sentences, then probably what you would want is some, some system that first kind of generates sentence encodings for each sentence individually and then uses those to compute the final answer. And then that would allow you to have some sort of bounding box in terms of what the representation of each sentence would be. And then you can kind of concatenate those together and 
continue to propagate bounds through that way. I see. So what kind of results do you get with this certifiably robust training approach? Yeah. So with this, basically, yeah, this is like finally able to get us uh, much better than like being worse than the majority baseline as, as we had with the 8%. So basically, you can just take the, uh, a same kind of simple model that like a, a convolutional neural network trained it to do sentiment analysis with this certifiably robust training. And we get something like 75% accuracy at test time on adversarially chosen perturbations, right? So this is, yeah, so like I said, this is like, at least you're doing much better than the majority baseline, right? 75 is still, I mean, clearly there's still a lot of room for improvement. And I guess the other thing that's kind of interesting about the results and a little frustrating is that oftentimes when you do these sorts of certifiably robust training processes, it comes at the cost of kind of the standard accuracy, right? So if you just evaluate accuracy of this model on non-perturbed examples, it's actually like a little bit worse than, than the original model. And it just, it just seems like there's often been found that there is this uh, sort of trade-off empirically between getting robustness and standard accuracy. It's not really clear whether this is fundamental. Like arguably like humans are good at both. So probably there shouldn't be a fundamental trade-off, but perhaps something about the, the current model architectures we have forces there to be some sort of trade-off between these. I have a clarification question here. The the adversarial examples that were generated at uh, test time, how is that distribution comparable to the word substitutions that you use to train the model? Uh, yeah, so I guess what, so one way to think of it is like at training time, the like input to the training algorithm is like, a training data set, of course. And then for each word in each example, there's kind of like a big a list of possible substitutions. So you, you kind of know all of the possible substitutions that could be applied. But of course, it's like you can't like list out all of them because the, you get this combinatorial explosion. And then at test time, you have basically similar lists for everything in the every example in the test set. And then you run this search algorithm I mentioned earlier to kind of find or heuristically find kind of one of the perturbations that causes a uh, high loss for, for the model. Does that sort of answer the question? Yeah, so. Yeah, I, I guess it does. I mean, what I was trying to get at is, do we know that the models are more robust given that, or maybe we need to get into details of how exactly the adversarial test examples were generated. But I mean, I guess one could say that you're training the model to preserve the labels even when you substitute the words with other adversarial possibilities, right? So how do we know that the model is more robust given that the train and the test sets are yeah, in a sense yeah, more that, no, that, that's, I think, that's like the million dollar question about like, how do you go from these settings where, yeah, like it's, right, it, so this is like, I would say this is just, it's robust in one sense and it doesn't at all imply that it is robust in, in other senses. So, so I think you're, you're absolutely right in, in your chair, yeah. And yeah, in general, I think it's, it's really challenging because like ideally what we would want is, right, is something like we want to be robust even for like completely unforeseen types of perturbations or, or distribution shifts or something like that. I think it's hard to like develop algorithms though that actually achieve that because I think almost always you, you need some sort of information about what's coming at test time in order to, to prepare prepare the model or else it's it's just kind of hard to get started. Yeah, so so that's definitely I would say that's definitely just like a limitation and there is a lot of interesting work I think 
like some of the interesting trends uh, I've seen now, like first, just even putting aside the issue of like unknown test distribution shifts, even just like getting simultaneous robustness to multiple different types of adversarial perturbations like itself is, seems to be kind of non-trivial. And so there's already like messages trying to say like, you know, how do you be simultaneously robust to multiple types of attacks? And I think there's definitely interesting possibilities going forward in terms of kind of trying to learn a set of, of perturbations, right? So, and perhaps like if you're good enough at learning what perturbations are valid, that that should mean that if you defend against that, you will have implicitly defended against a bunch of other types of perturbations that are kind of like just fit within what was learned by that one model. That's super interesting. Yeah, I wonder if there are certain kinds of robustness that are more correlated with each other and so more related at test time, even if you ignore them during training. But yeah, 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 uh, yeah def- definitely. Just like to give a comment on that. I, yeah, I think, again, <laughs> pulling from the, the vision literature, I think there's been some interesting analysis there. I think it's, I think it's just a, a little easier to like mathematically analyze what's happening in, in, in images. But there, there's been this interesting observation that like there's kind of a distinction between high frequency and low frequency perturbations. So high frequency is things like each pixel might be independently changed. Uh, whereas low frequency is like you can like ch- dim or brighten like the whole picture, right? And so there's some results there that, that show that basically if you try to make your model robust to high frequency perturbations, that will often help for other high frequency perturbations, but then it'll make it more sensitive to certain low frequency perturbations because right? it, it'll learn that it should rely more on low frequency signals and then become less robust to, to, to those sorts of things. So what, I'm sorry, I missed the end of what you were saying, but what are the analogs between the high, low frequency kind of perturbations in the language setting? Yeah, no, that's, that is a, that is a great question. I'm not sure I have a great answer to that. Although I I perhaps have a funny, uh, there, there, there's like an anecdote that I can share here. I don't know. This doesn't necessarily align with high and low frequency, I think, but it does, I think, emphasize the fact that like, yeah, being robust to something doesn't mean you're not, you're robust to other things. Uh, So actually, when we were writing this paper about word substitutions, like I, of course, best practice in machine learning is right. You like do do a bunch of tuning on your development set, right? And then you look at your test numbers only at the very end. So we were trying to do this, and so I had like kind of good results on validation, and then I ran some numbers on the test set a little bit before the paper deadline, and we noticed that the test set numbers were like significantly worse, and this was this was very confusing. And ultimately, what we figured out was was the following. That so this is particularly for the IMDB sentiment analysis data set. So what we, we figured out is that IMDB did this, this kind of very smart thing, which is they decided that they would put different movies in the train and test splits, right? So each movie might have many reviews associated with it, but like all those reviews are either in train or in test for any given movie. And so, right. And so one reason, of course, is that like you might imagine that there are these spurious correlations where like if you just memorize that like certain movies got very high ratings then you would use that as a cue to figure out the sentiment instead of like actually looking at, at the real sentiment. Right. But when I had made the like train validation split, we didn't do it that way initially. And so like basically the validation numbers were, were inflated for this reason. And what was interesting was that it seemed like the, the models that were trained with this certifiably robust training were like more likely to pick up on these sort of spurious cues associated with what movie is being mentioned than the other 
than the kind of normally trained movies. And so this was, and I think this had to do with the fact that like the way the perturbations were, sorry, this is maybe getting into too much detail, but like the way we defined the perturbations was they were more likely to perturb common words and less likely to perturb rare words. And rare words are things like names and names of actors and movies and so forth. And so it learned, oh, these are kind of more reliable features that stick around. I'll, I'll use these more. At least that, that's kind of the intuition, right? So basically, yeah, like this is an illustration that like, yeah, just because we're, we're forcing these models to be robust to certain types of perturbations, like they still might latch onto other patterns that themselves are like not the correct thing, quote unquote, to, to use. Yeah, so that's definitely, definitely a, a, a big concern. Got it. Thank you. That was a super interesting like path to go down. But to circle back yeah. to <laughs> kind of the high level what we were talking about, you also mentioned the second approach to training more robust models. Could you talk a little bit mm-hmm. about that? Yeah, yeah. So we had this other work where basically instead of modifying this training procedure, which it's it does make training kind of more expensive and you have to make certain assumptions on like what your model looks like and so forth. We tried to this other approach, which is just to have some different what we call encoding layer to basically like change the input layer to your network to directly enforce invariance to perturbations. And so I guess the key thing is is just that. We want these encodings to be these like discrete objects where basically like if we want uh, like original sentence and all the perturbed versions of the sentence like literally be encoded to the exact same value, right? And so if you can achieve that and then you use, use that encoding to kind of make predictions, right? It's clear that your model, of course, will be invariant to all the, all the perturbations. And so you, like the robustness kind of you get for free with just doing normal training and you can use any model you want on top of this. So the key question then becomes, how do you construct uh, these encodings? And we had, uh, we were basically able to do this uh, specifically in the case of trying to defend against uh, adversarial typos. What this basically looks like is there's kind of this trade-off between two things. Like on one hand, uh, you want this thing called stability, which is basically what I just said. Like you want for each sentence, all the like perturbed versions of it should uh, map to the same encoding. And then on the other hand, what you want is what we call fidelity, which is basically like, of course, you don't want to like collapse every possible input to the exact same representation, right? That would be very stable, but like would be useless for classification. And so we also want to make sure like when possible, basically like represent different things differently. And you can write down kind of as this nice like clustering objective, basically, that, that corresponds to optimizing a weighted combination of these two terms. And then we use this to get kind of much better robustness to adversarially chosen typos than from previous work. So previous work looked at things like using a, uh, a typo corrector, which like makes a, I think intuitively makes makes a ton of sense. But the issue there is that like typo correctors themselves often make mistakes, right? And so if you have some sort of adversary that's trying to insert a couple of typos to fool the system, they can fool the typo corrector into doing something weird, and then that'll cause the model to do something weird. And so this is kind of a way to to kind of avoid that sort of behavior. Gotcha. I was thinking maybe at this point we could switch gears, talk about your work on squad and adversarial squad examples. So can you talk a bit about what these examples were where you were studying squad models robustness to these distractor sentences? Like what are those distractor sentences and how are they created? Yeah, yeah. So, right. So this was work from, this is I guess kind of the, the work that the kind of first work that we were doing in in this adversarial example space. And I guess the motivation 
kind of was that at the time, there's we our group had released this the, the squad data set for question answering and models were starting to do quite well. But it was still like kind of clear that they were not actually good at reading comprehension. And so we were thinking about like, what are like evaluation settings that are like most as close as possible to like the original evaluation, but kind of expose the fact that these models are, are latching onto a lot of shallow patterns and not really doing reading comprehension. And so what we came up with is this idea of just like, uh, what if you just like add another sentence to, to the paragraph that kind of tricks the model into thinking it, it answers the question, uh, but it doesn't actually answer the question, right? So this, this, these, are, these are these kind of distracting sentences. And so the setup is, is just like we uh, construct these distracting sentences, append them to the paragraph, and then test models on this modified test data. And in general, they, they perform kind of a lot worse than they did on the unmodified test examples. So to actually construct these distracting sentences, there's like a couple options. Basically, one direction we used was just to say, let's just try to write sentences that basically have a lot, as many words in common and kind of have similar structure to the questions themselves. But then we're going to like modify a few words in ways that kind of makes them no longer answer, right? So for example, if the question is like, what NBC show aired in 2000, premiered in 2005 or whatever, right? You might like have that. And then like, you might write a sentence like the ABC show such and such premiered in 2006 or something like that, right? So you like take something that has, that's very similar, has some of the same words, but then modify it in a way that you know that this no longer actually provides an answer to me. And yeah, and it turns out that, that models basically aren't able to make these sorts of, weren't able to make these sorts of distinctions is when they were trained on squad between sentence like that and when that really does answer the question. There's also kind of a second option. So the second option was more motivated by, by this, this question about like, what happens if we just feed the model like completely unnatural stuff? Like, will it still kind of in, believe that some like very weird sequence of words has, carries some, some meaning? And so there we, so, so instead of kind of having these grammatical sentences that make sense we added what, what we kind of called like adversarial word salad. So you just like stick a bunch of words at the end of the paragraph. You can just like pick them randomly from your vocabulary and then do, again, some sort of like heuristic search procedure to find some sequence of 10 words that causes the model to output something wrong. And when you look at these sequence of 10 words, first of all, they like basically always like are not actually a sentence like they, they just look like gibberish to a human oftentimes they will have some words in common with the question and so so it's clear that like this these sort of lexical overlaps are a big part of what models are learning on squad yeah but they really don't have any like they don't have any meaning associated with them but still like we can actually get systems very reliably to 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 choose those answers i, I believe like we took like bidaf which at the time was like kind of one of the best models on squad and we could make it go down to like 2% accuracy or something by adding just like 10 of these like gibberish words at the end of each paragraph. So, yeah. Yeah, that's, that's super interesting. Is there a hypothesis about what perhaps in the squad data collection or the way the data set was designed that was leading to these to this reliance on these distractor answers with lexical overlap? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, so I think this, yeah, like arguably this says a lot like not only about the models, but also about about the data set. In general, I think Squad is, I mean, I think it's a, yeah, like I, I think basically Squad is, is a good data set. It doesn't have much noise, but it's just kind of easy, right? And one reason it's easy is because like oftentimes if you just like 
find a sentence that has kind of enough word overlap with a question that's like often good enough to figure out like roughly where the answer should be, right? And so, you know, when you have a data set that looks like that, it's only natural that, that the models you train on it themselves will kind of rely heavily on these sorts of easy to learn heuristics rather than actually doing real reading comprehension. Yeah. Between the two kinds of adversaries you mentioned, one where uh, you're uh, adding a very similar sentence at the end and the other where you're just adding gibberish, do you remember which ones were better at being uh, adversaries? Yeah, I think basically the, this like word salad approach led to like lower, lower accuracies. So th- there, there's like a couple of factors, I guess. So the accuracies were lower when you do this like, yeah, like random like gibberish words. I, although like for that, we also did like kind of compute intensive search to find these. Whereas for the distract, the natural distracting sentences, we just like, we got crowd workers to basically write, give us a few possibilities. And so there, there's like much less, there, there are many less candidates to try there. The other thing about the word salad thing is like it, when we do this search, we're like searching for a particular model, right? So we take BIDAF and like query BIDAF a bunch of times to figure out stuff that fools it. And stuff that fools BIDAF is not necessarily what might fool another model. Whereas the distracting sentences are kind of, we, we just constructed one version of the data set that would like be used to test all of them. Just to be clear here, the experimental setup is that you had a trained model which was trained on the original data distribution and you evaluated it on these adversarial test sets, right? I mean, that's the first experimental setup. And in a sense, it's kind of unsurprising that these models don't do well, right? I mean, they don't see such data during training and the distribution is essentially wildly different. I I mean, at that time, did you think it was a surprising result that the results on these adversarial test sets were so um, low? I think it was somewhat surprising. Like, I, I agree that, like, I mean, certainly there's no, like, guarantee or, like, theory that says that accuracy should be high. But I think the fact that, like, you could get, like, 10 words that didn't look like sentences and, and make the accuracy so low, I think that was somewhat surprising. And then further distracting sentences, I guess what I would say is, like, we tried... Right, like our motivation was like we don't want to actually like mutate the original paragraph. Right, the original paragraph is still there in its entirety, and presumably, purportedly, like the the models are good at at understanding that. And then just like adding some other sentence, like shouldn't really make it that much worse at understanding the rest of the paragraph. But it still had had a large effect. Yeah, I will say though, I think to some extent, like some of the motivation was just to to kind of throw up these sort of caution signs that like just the fact that models do well on a data set like squad doesn't mean they have like they are like good reading comprehension systems in some sort of more general sense right they are good at squad and kind of like any claims about more generality like after you have to evaluate them yeah like i think there, there were like these news articles i remember like in i think in 2018 when when models started hitting human performance there are these news articles from some places that you know had these headlines like, oh, like computers are as good as humans at reading comprehension or like stuff like that. And it's, it's just like completely laughable, right? But like I think it's important to make the point and continue to make the point, right? That like there's this huge gap between like doing well on an individual data set and like actually having solved some underlying problem. Right, right, right. Of course, yeah, I agree. I think it's, uh, I mean, I guess all of us expected the models to be fragile, but maybe not that fragile, right? You also had some experiments where you trained on the adversarial mm-hmm. examples, right? Can you maybe... Yeah, right. So that was, 
Yeah. So I guess the first part of that experiment, so we wanted to just, I think it was just a natural question to ask, like, is this, is this a flaw that's kind of easy to fix? And it turns out the answer is, is in a sense, yes. And that like, if you know how the distracting sentences are going to be generated, you add data like that to your training set and you basically like get rid of this problem. But we also argued that like that type of solution itself is quite brittle in that like, if you then kind of change the way you generate the distracting sentences, like your model will still be very vulnerable. So like, I think what we did is, so you can train models where you like add sentences to the end and have like one set of rules to determine like how you exactly like what like kind of fake answers you stick in those distracting sentences. And then at test time, if you put the distracting sentences at the beginning instead of the end and like have some different rules on where the answers come from, like your models are still bad, right? So they're, they're again, like kind of overfitting to the distribution and not really learning they're not really even learning much about like how to get rid of distractors in general. Like probably they've learned something more like ignore the last sentence often. Yeah, I think what you're saying also highlights some of or this idea that the way you collect the data is very important, the, da- the training data. And I think this strongly relates to some of your work on active learning in the case of imbalanced data sets. Can you talk a little bit about, I guess, firstly, like what is label imbalance more generally outside of the QA setting? And how does it relate to robustness? Yeah, yeah, sure. So this, this work we had, yeah, so in general, when we talk about label imbalance, like I, I think the simplest setting to think about is just in binary classification, right? Like when you have, like oftentimes we at least want to train on somewhat balanced data sets. That's just like kind of makes model training work better. But the reality of, of various tasks is that the actual distribution you care about might be extremely imbalanced and that like one label might be much more common than the other. So if you think about tasks like paraphrase detection, right? We have like balanced data sets for these that like we evaluate on leaderboards, but really like the natural distribution is incredibly skewed where like the vast majority of pairs of sentences are not paraphrases of each other. And in fact, like if you're trying to use a, a system to kind of, for example, detect whether some new piece of writing is a duplicate, well, you have to compare that new thing to like every other thing that you've seen before, right? So, and the vast majority of those comparisons will, of course, return a non-paraphrase. So this is actually, in some sense, kind of, I think, a very natural distribution to care about, the one that has such stark imbalance. And in QA, this does also arise, I think, whenever you think about things related to open domain question answering, where there's tons of documents on the web, very few of them, perhaps none of them, actually answer a question that the, the, the user has asked. Yeah, and, and so the interesting, I think, connection with, with robustness, I guess there are kind of two. So one, since we just talked about the, the question answering work, I think one extension of that is that, so, so this idea of like distracting sentences, for instance, right? So in the paper we had, we basically had one particular method, or like, I guess a couple, like still kind of specific methods for generating distracting sentences. But really like the set of distracting sentences is like really, really big. It's like any sentence that doesn't actually pr- provide like a different answer to the question, right? And you... In some sense, you can say like, you know, it's kind of like, it's, it's kind of bold of us to assume that we know what distracting sentences are actually hard for the model, right? Like, why not instead just like test on all of them, right? Or like, ideally, we would just like kind of test, test, test on all of them at least. And so that, that I think is very related to this kind of thing about label and bounds. We're like, yeah, there's a ton of things that like don't answer the question. And like, you kind of want to be able to reject all of them, right? Okay, and then, so so the, the other the other I think interesting connection with robustness is that I mentioned you want to train normally on balanced data, but if you care about really imbalanced distributions at test time, basically this like forces you to accept some amount of train test mismatch, right? 
And and this is like not right. Like this is this is now no longer fixable just by like slightly modifying your training distribution, like we saw in these extractor sentences, right? Because yeah, like you would have to enumerate all of them and add them to your training data, and that like would create terrible, uh, like that would just like not be feasible. So you need kind of some other some way of like collecting a reasonable training set that kind of helps you overcome this train test mismatch that you you know is coming. Right. So in our work, what we argue for is like actually like active learning can be a really nice tool to collect data for these sorts of situations. So like if you think about it, so so I guess to introduce active learning. So active learning is just this I this like kind of classic family of methods where kind of training a model and collecting data are kind of intertwined. So what you would do is you would start with kind of a small like seed data set, train an initial model on that, and use that model to tell you like what data would be most informative when you like train this model a second time. So you collect more data, you train a better model, use that model to decide what data to collect next, and so forth. You can go back and forth. And one of the classic heuristics for active learning is what's called uncertainty sampling. So basically you want to just like collect data at every stage that your current model has a lot of uncertainty about uh, in terms of what the correct label is. Right, so, so the, the, the thing to notice here about this algorithm is that you're kind of intentionally creating a train test mismatch, right? You're intentionally sampling data, not according to the actual underlying data distribution, but according to some other, you know, you're biasing it towards uh, data that is uncertain. But this still actually, like both theoretically and in practice, often like results in good or even better performance on the actual test distribution compared to if you just had, had kind of done random sampling. And so, so basically, like active learning is this like, really interesting. You can think of it as a method for creating training data sets that help you generalize to test data sets of a different distribution, uh, at least for particular some, for some particular types of, of different test distributions. And so it, it just seems like a good, a good candidate and a good match for, in general, trying to understand how to get better generalization. And so basically, the results we have, we looked at some, at, uh, some paraphrasing tasks and also question answering tasks. And basically, when you collect data with active learning, you're like much, a much better able to overcome this sort of label imbalance, right? So even if you take like BERT and train it on uh, balanced data sets, even though they get really good test accuracy and balanced data sets, they just like kind of fall over when you have these imbalances because they make too many mistakes on kind of the, the negative examples and that kind of overwhelms any like precision metrics. In this active learning setting, what happens mm -hmm. to the kind of balanced data sets? Is there still comparable performance? on whichever labels you're not up sampling in the test distribution. Oh, I see. Yeah, I guess. So I think the intuition is like the active learning still creates a relatively balanced data set. I think it's more that you're shifting. I think mainly what happens is that you shift the distribution, the training data distribution to target like negative examples that are kind of hard for the model, right? So when you have this extreme label imbalance, there's like tons of negative examples. Most of them should at least be very easy for a model, right? So if you just kind of randomly sample them, you're not going to see enough of the interesting hard cases. And so active learning lets you say, like, I'm going to select the, prioritize the cases that are hard and, yeah, and still collect, but still collect kind of relatively balanced data sets. I see. Has this been explored outside of binary classification or is that kind of like a, an open area still? Yeah, that's a good question. We really wanted to do like entailment, like I guess NLI where you have this like, class instead of two but like i think i think it would be interesting to to, to explore that too because it also has this big imbalance structure and i guess i i also think this work is really quite similar to just like the, the like really nice line of work that's been happening in open domain question answering right now 
where, I mean, at the end of the day, you're not outputting a binary thing usually, or you're doing some sort of extractive or even generative answer to your question. So, so yeah, I think that's another setting that goes beyond binary classification. I see. So I guess we're almost at the end of our conversation. I do have one higher level question, yeah, sure. which is, so I think this conversation, the question that it brings up for me is, should we be reporting measures of robustness always? Like why, why is the standard thing to do to just measure standard accuracy on some test set? Do you think that this should be a common practice to measure, for example, adversarial robustness, or are there downsides to that or computational difficulties? Yeah, so I, I think this is, this is a really challenging question. And I think it gets back to kind of this theme we talked about in the beginning, right? That there's not really like one metric for robustness. There's like robustness to all sorts of different things. And so like one, one, thing, one thing I kind of worry about certainly is like this thing where like if we just like purport to have a metric for robustness, there's probably like a way to, to game it and like make it look like you are like robust in some absolute sense when that, that is probably not really the case. Um, yeah, so I think it's, it's tricky. I think certainly as kind of an analysis tool, I think I would love to see more work that looks at, I mean, all sorts of generalization questions, right? How do, well do you do on different subpopulations? How well do you do on perturbed inputs? How well do you do on just like completely other data sets that are in like a similar format to what, what you're testing? I think all of these, I would certainly love to see more, more reporting of these going forward. But at the same time, like, I think there's also a lot you can gain from in-domain error analysis as well, right? So I, th I think these are, these are all just different, different tools to help us understand how these models behave. Yeah, and I think when you try to actually formalize this into a leaderboard, for instance, like basically for the adversarial squad stuff, we intentionally never put it on the leaderboard because we felt that it would just encourage people to find ways to kind of game that particular robustness metric, but not actually be more robust in general. So I think it's an open question, like how do you actually come up with a satisfying metric that is 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 kind of not just like easy to to get to kind of solve without solving some more deeper underlying issue. I see. Yeah. Anything else either of you want to talk about before we wrap up? I have one high level question, not to get into too many details, but I guess one common theme we talked about in this conversation is the distribution mismatch between train and test sets, right? Uh, and uh, most of these adversarial test sets were built to somehow capture the realistic distribution of test sets and so on. Towards the beginning of this conversation, you pointed out that this distribution of data might keep changing over time for various reasons, including the fact that language still changes. So to I mean, keeping that in mind, should we try to think of adversarial test sets that also evolve over time? And if so, how exactly do we even mm -hmm. build them? Do we rely on models yeah. for that? Or do you yeah, have any other question. thoughts there? So, yeah, I'll, I'll talk about this in ways. <laughs> so so I, at, at FAIR, I'm actually involved in this project right now called, called DynaBench, where that has at least, I, I think, one way to do what, what, you're, what you're asking about. So the idea there is we have humans in the loop kind of writing, trying to write hard questions. And every time someone adds a new model to the leaderboard, that, that changes like what model people are interacting with. And so you kind of constantly collect different data that's trying to be uh, challenging toward, towards different models over time. So I, I think it will be really interesting to see kind of what the limiting behavior of this, of this, of this process is. I do think it's definitely not like the only way. Probably having humans in the loop at some level is going to be critical. But I can definitely imagine like kind of semi-automated ways of doing stuff too. For example, like humans 
probably have a comparative advantage in just identifying like what are interesting things to change about an input. But then computers have a comparative advantage in just being able to do search and right, like try a lot of combinations of these uh, quickly, right? So some sort of collaborative way of generating examples, yeah, I think could could also work very well. Yeah, I think I think this is, this is a really interesting kind of thing to think about moving forward. Great. Thank you so much, Robin, for joining us. This is a really fun discussion. Yeah, thank you for having me. I really enjoyed it. All right. Thanks, we Robin. can.